Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Landry Ayers. You might notice that I am not, in fact, Aaron Ross Powell, our usual host for the show. And that's because today is a special day, because we get to tell you that Zooming In is growing. Aaron is still with us, just not today, but he will be back. He's still going to be hosting episodes, bringing his unique insights and questions to the best and brightest guests. But we are also going to be giving you more of this podcast from more of us at The Unpopulist, too, starting right now. Today is our editor's roundtable. And so I'm joined by my colleagues, Shika Dalmia and Bernie Belvedere, as well as Director of Election Policy at the Rainey Center and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, Andy Craig. Welcome, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, Landry. And thanks for doing it. This is your inaugural episode moderating us since you hopped on board full time with the Unpopulist. Yes, uh, uh, very, very excited to join Long-time listener, few-time editor and producer, but uh, first time on the show myself, so I'm very excited. So at the very end of last year, just before the holidays, Donald Trump's presidential campaign hit a large roadblock when the Colorado State Supreme Court ruled he is ineligible for the office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, also known as the Insurrection Clause, uh, due to his actions during January 6th. While many of his opponents praised this decision as justice finally taking course, there has, of course, been backlash. Uh, a major complaint about the decision to take him off the ballot is that doing so would be anti-democratic, a, a circumvention of the people's will by unelected politicians in robes. Exercising judicial power to remove a candidate who has on occasion been leading in the polls does seem remarkably anti-democratic. Uh, even some liberals have expressed some qualms about such a course like this. Are they justified in their worries about this? It's a good question, Landry. And uh, what to me has been super interesting to watch in this age of polarization is that this is the one issue on which at least the pundit class hasn't been polarized along uh, regular partisan lines. Uh, there are plenty of, as you mentioned, uh, liberal pundits and even progressive ones who have uh, suggested that it's an extremely bad idea to try and disqualify Trump in this fashion. And then there are, you know, conservative uh, columnists and pundits who've taken the opposite position, uh, you know, that uh, we ought to use this uh, provision. Andy Craig, our very own Andy Craig, wrote an excellent piece for the unpopulist, which is actually going to be sort of like the focal point of our discussion today. And uh, Andy, in fact, wrote, not only would it not be anti-democratic, it would be better for democracy if we uh, deployed Section 3. And on the other side, you know, you have Samuel Moyne, who's a progressive uh, professor of law at Yale University, who wrote a very powerful piece in the New York Times uh, saying that it would be a mistake to use uh, Section 3. Jonathan Chait has uh, who's uh, with the New York uh, magazine, has a progressive or at least a liberal columnist who's made a similar case. Uh, then you have, of course, Ross Doudhat at the New York Times, who's 
taken their view too. But you have Charlie Sykes at the Bulwark, who's made, you know, as powerful a case as Andy as to why we should use Section 3. So it's, you know, so it's been actually in some ways hardening to see that this um, reaction hasn't fallen along typical partisan lines. There's a robust conversation about this going on. Uh, But I actually have a few questions for Andy, uh, just to kind of help clarify the situation a little bit. So, Andy, you wrote this very good column for us where you sort of went over what Section 3 is supposed to do. And uh, the argument, the initial argument for using uh, Section 3 was made by William Board and um, I I forget his uh, co-author, but they are both Federalist Society people. And, uh, you know, they pointed out that this provision was meant specifically to keep out insurrectionists and it was written after the Civil War. Now, but what exactly is this provision? Does this provision entail preventing Trump from serving, assuming office, or does it entail uh, keeping him off the ballot, disqualifying him off from the ballot? Uh, because, you know, what the uh, Colorado Supreme Court has done, I think to some extent depends upon that, uh, you know, what exactly that provision allows. So Section 3, um, as everybody is kind of familiar with now, was originally after the Civil War. Uh, the 14th Amendment was written and adopted in 1868 during Reconstruction. And the initial concern was, uh, you know, southern states, as they'd started to be sort of, it was complicated, but readmitted to the Union and electing new members of Congress, there were people like the former vice president of the Confederacy uh, being elected to the Senate. And that was seen as, as you know, very much something we have to prevent. Um, and so, what Section Three does is um, it refer it first defines a group of offices you're being barred from, which is basically everything: member of Congress. Um, you know, there's there's arguments about this language and if the president's covered by it, but on the face of it, it covers basically any state and federal office. You can't be any of those. If you were somebody who previously held what's basically, but again, there's arguable ambiguity, the same list of offices, and then broke your oath that you were required to take to the Constitution by engaging in insurrection or rebellion. Um, And at the time, everybody knew what this meant. It was obviously about the Civil War and the Confederacy, and there was not much factual ambiguity. But there are a number of things that have kind of made it more complicated today than it would have been in 1868. Um, This whole question of ballot access, well, if you're disqualified uh, from the office, can you still be put on ballots by the state? Well, that's not how elections worked in 1868. The government didn't print ballots. Um, as, as much as we take that for granted and obvious today, there was this, it was called party tickets. It was basically DIY ballots, any scrap of paper you wanted, but in practice, the parties printed and distributed, um, their, their ballots, their party tickets. It's where we get the term from, uh, listing their candidates and that's how you would vote. And so there was no opportunity for this question to arise in the pre-election context, um, but since then, uh, you know, everywhere is adopted. We have official standard government printed ballots. Uh, we've had that for, you know, pretty much everywhere for more than 100 years now. 
And so the government has to make the decisions somehow about who qualifies for that. And there's a lot of complicated fights. You'll hear particularly third party people, but sometimes Republicans and Democrats get caught up in it, too. Um, I mean, candidates get kicked off the ballot all the time in the United States, sometimes for very piddly, technical, (laughs) not very well justified reasons. And so that is not unique, but there's, you know, there's this question, do the people have the right to to vote for somebody? And then it's up to Congress to, you know, decide when they're counting the electoral votes. Um, but the, the case that states can kick disqualified candidates off the ballot is very strong because there's a long history of doing it. Um, in a case out of the 10th Circuit out of Colorado, uh, written by then 10th Circuit Judge Neil Gorsuch, um, he, he upheld kicking a, uh, natural, uh, naturalized citizen who was trying to run for president off the ballot. Who's not eligible because they have to be a natural born citizen. Um, and so that is relatively clear. There's, you know, is section three different and then does it by its terms apply to Donald Trump in part because he was only ever president and never held any other office in his life, which would have been a kind of thing nobody would have thought about as even possible in 1868. It, he's literally the only person in American history that's true of. Um, and then, you know, you and then you get into all the, the fights about what was January 6th, how culpable was he for it? Does it count as an insurrection and all that sort of thing? So that's kind of where things stand. There is a big, huge, long litany of issues that the Supreme Court is going to have to take up here. Um, One of the few things we can say with some confidence, though, is that even if the Supreme Court upholds the Colorado ruling and says, yes, Colorado made the right decision, they can kick them off the ballot. That does not mean states will have to take them off the ballot. It will still be up to state law if the state has that as a requirement for appearing on the ballot and has a mechanism for enforcing it and hearing a dispute over it. Um, and most states, frankly, just don't, particularly for president. Um, you know, I mentioned the, the case of a, a naturalized citizen. There have been other cases of people who are underage. They're not 35 years old yet. Um, and some states have put them on the ballot and some states haven't. Um, and so there is a bit of caution that like even the best case scenario here, Trump will still be the Republican nominee. He will still be on the ballot in most states and probably, I mean, almost certainly every state he would have won anyway. Um, So this is not a silver bullet, Um, but I do still think there's a strong case for why this is the correct reading. I mean, as you mentioned, the Bode Paulson article really kicked this um, uh, debate off in strongly originalist terms of like, what does the plain text of this mean? How would it have been understood at the time? Um, and they make a very persuasive case. So what happens then? You say that, uh, you know, it's the Supreme Court is just likely to, even if it allows Colorado to kick him off the ballot, Trump off the ballot, other states can keep him on the ballot. And you know, the way it's going to work is that the, you know, blue states where um, he was not going to win anyway may kick him off the ballot, although California has refused to do that. And the red states where he would win are going to keep him on the ballot. 
And that would be enough for him to get enough electoral college votes to be elected president. But then will can Section 3 prevent him from serving as president if he is determined to be an insurrectionist? And I mean, this is kind of where I get super confused that if the Supreme Court says, OK, states, do what you want to go by your election rules, keep him on the ballot or don't keep him on the ballot. But ultimately, it'll still have to, if he gets elected, he, they, you know, he could be still sued under Section 3 to be prevented from assuming office. So what does keeping him off the ballot right now in a few states that are inclined to do so, what purpose does that serve? Well, that's that's right. Um, the Electoral College is the ultimate decider uh, if they cast a majority of their votes, except for then it goes to Congress. And then on January 6th, um, I mean, this has always been the usual understanding and the reformed Electoral Count Act leaves this deliberately left this in place that presidential qualification disputes like this um, can be decided by Congress during the Electoral Count. Um, we only have one precedent for that. Um, but in 1872, uh, Horace Greeley, who had lost in a landslide, uh, died uh, between election day and when the electoral college voted. A few of his electors voted for him anyway. Congress said, no, we're not going to count that. A dead person is not eligible to be president. Um, and so that was an easier call <laughs> than is, is, they, is somebody an insurrectionist. But um, it would likely go there. And then, and then afterwards, if you know Congress does not throw out the electoral vote, sustain an objection to his eligibility. Um, somebody could, I'm sure somebody would, a lot of people would try to sue and say, you can't enforce whatever on me because you're not the real president. Um, it is very unlikely that the Supreme Court would challenge Congress's decision on that. Um, I mean, there's going to be, there's a strong kind of, background assumption that uh push comes to shove the president is who congress says the president is um and that's going to be the legal inclination but part of the advantage of having a ruling now is that having that ruling now could influence what congress does in that situation um and this matters not just if he's won i think if he's lost we're going to see this we're going to see the objection be made it has to be co-sponsored by a fifth of each house under the reformed ECA. And so this is going to be getting debated on January 6, 2025, uh, either way. And, uh, you know, I think the court ruling is going to have a big influence on the kind of just the political context going into that. And um, if they've completely shut it down, that's going to heavily weaken the people wanting to object. And if they've endorsed it or semi-endorsed it or, you know, done something more favorable towards it, um, that's going to be kind of a green light stamp of approval implicitly uh, for for members of Congress to push harder on it. So if I understand you correctly, Andy, what you're saying is that if the Supreme Court lets Colorado boot Trump off the ballot because it has 
looked at the record of his inflammatory statements, his conduct on January 6th, and determined that he was insurrectionist. So if it gives Colorado that green light, that, okay, you, if your rules, state rules, allow you to kick him off the ballot because you've determined he's an insurrectionist, it subtly then strengthens the argument that he, in fact, did engage in an insurrection, even though the Supreme Court is not taking a position on that. On the other hand, if it says you have to keep him on the ballot, it undercuts the argument that he he was an insurrectionist. Is that, am I understanding this correctly? I think that's right. And, it, and it's not just that it... Uh will have an influence on what Congress does at the electoral count. It, it also sends a message to the voters. I mean, I think the that also matters um, in this. So the fact that the Supreme Court is even, you know, potentially treating this as like as legitimate, even if they're not necessarily endorsing it, um, I think does make a big difference in the same way we've seen um, some polling evidence that, uh, at least for now, seems to look like uh, if he's actually convicted in his criminal trials, um, there are some that will move some voters. Um, so that's that's you know there's no there's no shortcut around ultimately having to win the election, even mm-hmm. with the unfairness of all the election undermining things he is doing, um, including the you know this is part of the point I made in my article the effectively ongoing insurrection, the campaign of uh, intimidation and harassment and trying to undermine the legal process and trying to sabotage our ability to have a free and fair election. Um, But, you know, even with all that, uh, ultimately, you know, nothing, nothing the court does, nothing any government can do can stop the Republican Party from saying he's our nominee. And telling people to go, you know, vote for him and write him in if they have to. This this is very important, but it matters on the margins of the political context, not because the Supreme Court is going to definitively decide if Donald Trump can be a candidate for president. You know, how terrible would it be if the Supreme Court comes down along partisan lines on this issue? And, uh, you know, which would essentially mean that the six conservative Supreme Court justices would tell Colorado to put him back on the ballot and the three liberal justices dissent. Uh, How would that play out? And what do you expect to happen? I mean, what do you expect the Supreme Court to do? I mean, I know what we would want it to do. I think we would all want it to unanimously say that Colorado, you're allowed to do what you're doing. But if what is really what what can we expect realistically and what happens if it falls along partisan lines? Well, on that uh, first point, I mean, this is one of my disagreements I've had with uh, particularly some of the liberal writers you've mentioned who have come out against uh, applying Section 3. And that's this the, the legitimacy concern like that cuts both ways. Um, I mean, it would be a very serious undermining of legitimacy uh, if if it does come down on partisan lines, especially if he then wins. Um, and it, it looks, you know, I mean, a lot of people are going to say this is like Bush v. Gore, and I would say it's a lot worse than Bush v. Gore. Um, but 
yeah, no, that's 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 something that needs to be uh, considered too. Like this is all focused so much of the discourse on what Trump supporting voters want and what they're entitled to and everything, but like they're not the only voters here who have a stake in this outcome, um, and they're not the only voters who have very strong views about uh, what Donald Trump did and what the consequences should be. Um, in terms of what's likely to happen, um, I mean, oh gosh, that is always an extremely dangerous game to play with the Supreme Court, even after oral arguments, which we haven't had yet. Um, and in this case in particular, it is very hard to say. Um, I'm, what I will say is I think there's a wide range of possibilities that are all um, plausible in that, like, I could see it going either way. I think it's likelier, probably, that they will overturn Colorado and that they will do so on grounds that specifically don't require them to reach the Section 3 thing, like the merits of, you know, is he an insurrectionist? They'll say there's this theory that Congress has to pass a law to enforce it um, and, and states can't do it. There's this weird nonsense about how the president isn't an officer of the United States. I find that one very frustrating. <laughs> um, but that's, I, I would say like the median likeliest outcome is that they'll do something like that. Um, but it's a, it's a wide distribution <laughs> of the possibilities here. But would you say whichever side the Supreme Court comes out on, it's better come out close to unanimously rather than breaking down on partisan lines. I would say that's right, because even if they side with Trump, a unanimous opinion would be the narrowest, least inflammatory. Uh, you know, the, I mean, the liberal justices would not sign on to an opinion saying actually January 6th wasn't an insurrection um, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So, um, I mean, yeah, I would I would say that's. And it's not impossible that we could have maybe not even a unanimous, but a potentially like a 7-2 ruling um, or that there could be, you know, one or two justices who, who cross cross uh, sides in terms of which block they're voting with. Um, that's entirely possible. I mean, yes, a 6-3 decision would probably be the worst thing on party lines. Uh, just pivoting away just a little bit from questions of how, you know, the process might look to oppose Trump or to keep him off the ballot or to disqualify him. Um, in your piece that uh, Shika alluded to earlier, uh, the one that you published with us on January 4th, you wrote the following. Um, insisting Trump be treated as a normal candidate ignores the reality that he isn't one. The argument against disqualification projects a desire for normalcy onto an abnormal situation, a kind of wish-casting denial mechanism. And I wanted to ask a question about this that deals with something you hear a lot um, from the former president's supporters, especially online. So you rightly note that Trump is abnormal. Um, but should we worry at all about what treating a candidate we correctly judge to be abnormal as abnormal could provoke the other side to do? Like you see this reply all the time, like, quote unquote, these are the new rules. Like this is the new standard. You guys now have to live up to it. So like the Biden impeachment is 
uh, an instance of that. So the worrisome idea here, just to state it as directly as possible, is that a segment of the right is promising to sort of retributively treat uh, candidates uh, across the aisle, uh, candidates that by any objective standard are very much normal and within the normal range of sort of political behavior um, as abnormal in response. Like, is that a worry that we should factor into our calculus? And I'll just use one concrete example here just to, to bring it down to earth a little bit to see how it might look like. Is there a concern that a secretary of state from a, from a red state rather than, you know, what Maine secretary of state did? Uh, he might say, strike Kamala Harris from the state ballot if she ran for president in the future on the dubious grounds, obviously, but on the grounds that she's not a natural born citizen, you know, based on her parents being foreign nationals when they had her here in the States. You know, there was that meme that was going around. Should that concern, that kind of approach that the other side now takes to, you know, to their rivals worry us at all? I mean, it is a a reasonable thing to consider and to look at this kind of slippery slope, uh, tit for tat escalation concern. But I mean, this isn't new. Uh, They were filing frivolous lawsuits saying Barack Obama wasn't a natural born citizen. Um, I mean, they they tried it against Ted Cruz, too, and John McCain. We have to at some point have some confidence that the the law will be applied, uh, you know, as it's written, or at least within the same ballpark of as it's written. I mean, if you're going around disqualifying, um, you know, candidates off the ballot for transparently bogus reasons, um, that's something that, that, you know, would, <laughs> would be flagrantly beyond the bounds of what the constitution allows, including past court rulings. Um, and I do think it's the case that when you're talking about these federal qualifications for federal office, that's a federal question uh, that's reviewable by the federal courts. And it has been. These sorts of cases have been reviewed and appealed in federal courts before. But the reality is we don't have anything comparable to January 6th. I mean, it was such a incredibly unique thing. Um, you know, you hear raised sometimes, well, what about some local politician gave a speech to the Black Lives Matter rally in 2020, and then there was a riot, um, and then they, like, burned down a courthouse or something. And you can kind of start to get close to building an arguable case in those cases, um, but the real, the factual reality is we just don't have anything that clear-cut. We do not have a case of a state representative somewhere uh like directly right there inciting a riot, telling people to go march on the building they then ransacked. Um, that's just, you know, even even the kind of hardest left, most out there with the protesters, politicians who hold these offices, which you have to, because Section 3 only covers people who've already taken an oath. It's frivolous, and you can't concede to that because then you're effectively conceding, well, this is all, the, the law is just meaningless. We're beyond it. We're into the realm of pure power politics, um, which might be kind of what they want, but you're really conceding the point then. A couple of things I wanted to say in response to what you said, Andy, and we want to have a broader conversation about whether or not, uh, you know, it is anti-democratic to use, uh, you know, anti-democratic means to keep somebody off the ballot. But in response to, you know, 
even in the example of some politician inciting writers, Black Lives Matter writers or whoever, uh, to go and burn down a courthouse, the crucial difference is they are not, what makes this an insurrection is they are not doing it to overturn an election. You know, they are doing it to express their rage or, you know, what have you. In this case, Trump was actually, you know, engaging in this behavior to stop the peaceful transfer of power and make himself the next president uh, through uh, through violence. And the argument, you know, for using Section 3 that kind of finally persuaded me was the one that Ilya Somin made, that he said, you know, you've got this provision in Section 3 that insurrectionists are disqualified. If you fail to apply it in this case, right, in Trump's case, which is really the most clear-cut case of insurrection that we have seen, basically, you are nullifying Section 3. You'll never be able to use it again, right? And to me, that's a powerful argument because then this opens the door to all kinds of future insurrections by other candidates if you're not going to use it to keep Trump, or at least attempt to keep Trump out. You're giving up on Section 3. I mean, absolutely. Uh, the the incentives we're setting up by the precedent this sets is, is a hugely important consideration, and that's why Section 3 exists. Um, that is the whole purpose of it, even though it, it, it's triggered by past wrongdoing. It's forward-looking to protect the constitutional order from future threats because we know that this, you know, this past behavior uh, is an indicative of somebody who can't be trusted to not do it again, as we've seen in spades from Donald Trump. Um, and the other thing about Section 3 that, that limits it uh, kind of running down that, you know, what if every riot in the country, does that then become an insurrection? Is Section 3 is limited only to insurrection specifically against the U.S. Constitution. Um, so if you're just having a riot because you're mad about the local DA didn't prosecute a cop who killed somebody, um, that's, you know, that can be all sorts of other crimes that can, you know, we, we don't want riots and everything, but that's not trying to overthrow the U S constitution. Um, that's not trying to set up some kind of alternate authority that you say is the supreme law of the land. That's not the constitution. And that's the really kind of the motive element that is necessary to trigger Section 3. And it's what was so different about what Trump did. Um, but absolutely, you know, an unpunished uh, uh, coup attempt is a dress rehearsal. I think I'd like to sort of broaden us out a little bit even more, sort of, you know, piggybacking off of what Bernie was asking earlier. And this is a question I think that is really open to anybody here. Getting to the notion that sort of democracy is about people choosing the way that they want to be governed um, and that this seems sort of anti-democratic on its face as a move. Um, some might not care if Trump did something outside the bounds of the constitution or even sort of directly against it. Um, we saw in our last episode uh, the interview with Tom Schull, which if you haven't listen to, you should go back and check out, um, that based on the findings of our poll, uh, a not insignificant amount of Trump's supporters and indeed even some of Biden's supporters don't mind their preferred candidate going outside 
or around the law if it means they get what they want done faster. But the insurrection clause as it's written functions regardless of, of people's choice. Um, it, it can circumvent the democratic process in, in a way. So why is that valuable to us as a part of the constitution? Why should we support that if democracy is one of our core values? What values or ideals or, or institutions do we need in conjunction with this sort of surface level of democracy in order to protect the open society that we value? So it's absolutely uh, true that Section 3, uh, in, in that sense, is is directly anti-democratic. You're kicking a candidate off the ballot. You're saying votes for them don't count. You're saying that person can't take office. And so, the, so you know, it's understandable. But the thing to understand is that the question is, will we have a f- truly free and fair election if they're on the ballot? Um you know, this is a measure to prevent the disqualified candidate's opponents from having to fight on an unlevel playing field, of having to fight with one hand tied behind their back, because they're not the ones resorting to fraud and violence and coercion and threats and all the rest of it. Um, and if you don't apply that rule that, you know, that that's 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 breaking the rules in a way that gets you kicked out of the game then it will become a slippery slope of escalation you know as much as we talk about um you know what if what if trump loses and tries to overturn the election again and all the things he's doing it it is something to keep in mind that uh if he wins the backlash will be immense. I think there will be massive protests. I think there will be much stronger than there was during the second term, uh, a sense that he is illegitimate um, and that he is not, you know, the real proper constitutional president and all the rest of it. And a lot of that may well be correct and justified, but it's it's the same kind of uh, outcome we want to avoid. Uh, so when we're talking about Will will a candidate be kicked off the ballot? It's not just that they, uh, you know, betrayed their oath to the Constitution as a whole. It's that they specifically betrayed the premise of the electoral process, which is that we have a free and fair election and the winner wins. And you know, you can you can go home and try again next time. Um, and that's that's the fundamental. That's the way elections function to channel what would otherwise be violent social conflict into a peaceful, orderly, regular mechanism where the where the loser doesn't have to feel it's existential, that there's always the next election, that you're not going to get uh, you know, thrown in prison for having backed the wrong party because it lost, that the votes will be counted accurately and uh, you know, there won't be mobs trying to coerce relevant officials into producing fraudulent election results, um, which is what he tried to do. And so, you know, if you have an election where all that's running unchecked, even if he loses in spite of it, it's already something less than what we would call a free and fair election. I mean, when you look at, you know, we understand that countries like Russia and even to some degree countries like Hungary have elections 
but there's something less than free and fair. Um, and at the extreme end, they're just total shams and everybody knows it's fake. Um, and, you know, we're not that far gone, but the reason we have this rule is to shut that down before it keeps going, before it does escalate into uh, the situation where, you know, ultimately we backed away from enforcing Section 3 before during Reconstruction. I mean, we passed it in 1868. But then within a very few short years after that, Congress passed sweeping amnesties, federal troops were pulled out of the South, there was the whole failure of Reconstruction, the reestablishment by former Confederates in high political office of white supremacist one-party rule for the next century in the South. That's what happened last time we, we decided, oh, it would be too anti-democratic to uh, follow Section 3. Um, and that's, that's directly related to it. All of the violence that was used, all of the terrorism to disenfranchise black voters in the South, the Klan and all the rest of it was a direct consequence of failure to uphold section three. Yeah. And I think to the question of what does it take for us to, uh, be able to have free and fair elections? creating safeguards and implementing them so that we can achieve that might at times take a feature or a uh, rule in place that on its face appears anti-democratic or it's undemocratic. It's in the long-term interest of that democratic project, um, you know, remaining viable. And it's, it's really interesting to me, like when, when other institutions are discussed along these lines, uh, like, for example, when we debate about whether the Electoral College is democratic or not, the kind of um, bumper sticker reply from a lot of people on the right in defense of the Electoral College is that we're a republic, not a democracy. And so they make that distinction there. The idea being um, that there are limits to our democracy and society, that uh, the shape of American society ought to be seen as partially, not fully democratic. But then when it comes to Trump's eligibility, suddenly that distinction that, you know, many people make between a constitutional republic and the pure will of the people or whatever, it gets sort of very selectively flattened. So in essence, they ditch the constitutional constraints that the framers or writers of the Constitution and the amendments deliver to us and appeal to the idea that the will of the people should override those constraints. Um, I mean, that's what's involved in the acknowledgement that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment exists and that it may even technically apply here. And yet we should sort of argumentatively prioritize the idea that Trump is backed by the will of the people. I mean, I guess I'm just for, with this comment. I'm, I just I would like some consistency here. Either there are limits to an outworking of the pure will of the people and we can acknowledge what those limits are, you know, constitutionally. And we can even debate about whether to make adjustments there. Andy, uh, fact check for me. What, what's the, the requirement for a constitutional amendment? Is it two thirds of Congress and then is it two thirds or three fourths of the houses need to ratify or the states? It's uh, two, two thirds of each house of Congress and three quarters of the states. So 38 states. So we have a tool in place if we feel like, you know, we, we need to adjust some constitutional constraint or not. That's something that we need to sort of uh, be a little bit more consistent on. Do you here's here's the result of the position that admits of no constant, no democratic limits, you know, no democratic constraints. You get Trump back on the ballot, which is the result you wanted. 
But then you get the elimination of the Electoral College, the Senate's model of representation, and other things in place that place limits on our democracy. Well, the Bill of Rights. A- absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You know, you've got to make a distinction, actually, between anti-democratic and non-democratic. And Jonah Goldberg has, you know, has made that distinction, right? The Bill of Rights is not anti-democratic. It puts some constraints on the power of the majority, right? Like you can't, through a majority vote, vote away the First Amendment or free speech or, uh, you know, gay marriage if it's already been approved, you know, duly approved and, you know, what have you. You can't simply take it, you know, uh, put it up to a vote. But it is not anti-democratic. It's not. And so I think that distinction is important. And, uh, you know, if you look at the founders, they all recognize this distinction that there have to be some constraints on the power of the majority so that you can have some stability across the, you know, like every time a new government comes, it doesn't just rewrite everything and strips people of their freedom and uh, their rights and just decides who it's going to extend the rule of law to and who it is not. I mean, I've actually got a series of quotes over here that Charlie Sykes very helpfully provided So uh, from the founder. So John Adams, what was his opinion about pure majority rule? Remember, he said, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy, yet that did not commit suicide. It is in vain to say that democracy is less vain, less proud, less selfish, less avaricious than aristocracy or monarchy. And then you have James Madison, democracies, he wrote in Federalist Number 10, have ever, have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been incompatible with personal security or rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. I mean, that's kind of if you completely, you know, open every decision of the republic to a majority vote, you will have, you know, what Andy was saying, a winner-take-all system where the stakes become existential and it's imposing one, you know, mob's will over the other. And that's exactly what we are trying to prevent over here. Yeah, I think I think this is one of those cases, Shika, where that linguistic point that you made really helps us understand the broader sort of conceptual point about democracy. I, I'd i like to try to give an example of something that I think is undemocratic or non-democratic, like you said, but that is not anti but pro-democracy, and then one that is undemocratic or non-democratic and also anti-democratic. So I think the Senate model of representation, um, the fact that it assigns the same measure of representation to a California resident and someone from Alaska, uh, this is supposed to be obviously a counterbalance, right, to the House's model of representation, which is based purely on population. So the Senate's model is undemocratic or non-democratic. But in my view, it's also anti-democratic because it ultimately cuts against the core idea of democracy that every citizen, right, should have equal representation in government. So it's both non-democratic and anti-democratic. But then if we bring it back to Section 3, but instead of applying it to Trump, um, talking about like the the former Confederate officials and soldiers who are barred, um, that's undemocratic or non-democratic to do that because, of course, these are people, as Andy noted, who could garner a critical mass of support from the people to propel them back into public office. They could do that. But it's 
also pro-democracy rather than anti because it sends a message that those who engaged in insurrection against the U.S. should never get to hold office in it again. So it's very straightforwardly pro-democracy in that you are barring those who tried and those who might try again to, again, bring up Andy's point about its future-facing provision there uh, to erode our democratic project, even though technically you'd, be ha- you'd have to be- tell a bunch of people, hey, you can't get your guy in. So it's non-democratic, but it's actually pro-democracy in the long run. I mean, yeah, there's even a simpler analogy to think about it, right? Like in a game, you have an umpire. Now, who is supposed to enforce the rules of the game, which actually enhance the game and protect the sport, right? So the Lions are now in playoffs here, you know, in the state of Michigan, where I spent three decades of my life in. And if... Every time a player kneecaps the player from another team and you have to take a vote of the fans of that player and that team, whether he actually did kneecap that player and should be allowed to stay, you would destroy the sport. And it's something similar over here, right? Like if you, you know, allow a major, you know, majoritarian rule to decide whether somebody, uh, you know, whether their candidate has played by the rules and is an insurrectionist or not, rather than some neutral, you know, empire like the judiciary, you're just going to destroy democracy. So, you know, these non-majoritarian, non-democratic provisions have in some ways been implemented to protect democracy. And I really, you know, like I really hate that, you know, that phrase that uh, opponents of Section 3 have come up with. Well, here you're using anti-democratic means to save democracy, right? Like, no, that completely misses the point as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And a lot of this goes to, you know, if you look at the difference between how we speak of democracy today versus what uh, James Madison and how John Adams were using the term, it's taken for granted today we mean liberal democracy right and the liberal half of it has its own basket of rules it means something exactly we just you know usually call it democracy shorthand we understand but that's part of it we understand that free speech and the rule of law and you know constitutional rights and free elections and all of these things um you know, go into the basket that it's not, we're not talking about just pure unlimited majority rule where, you know, 50% plus one, you can do whatever you want. Um, and so when, you know, I do find it frustrating when there those two senses of, you know, you might better call it not democracy, but majoritarianism, which is one element among others in the system. We're always balancing those things against each other and nobody really disputes that premise but this rhetoric often frames it as you're violating this fundamental principle without acknowledging that the whole system is built on some fundamental principles that are sometimes in tension. I do have a question, however, which is this, that, you know, I think we are all pretty much in agreement that there's nothing anti-democratic about uh, using Section 3, right? But is there something unwise about using Section 3? You know, at a time when the courts were a respected institution as they had been in the past, but are not quite now. And they could function as an empire, right? Like as a neutral umpire that whose decisions everybody can kind of live with. It would be one thing. But if the court is seen as politicized and polarized, then how does half of the public have 
uh, confidence that they've made a, the correct decision and a nonpartisan and a neutral and a fair-minded decision, right? And if that's the case, if the courts can't serve as that neutral empire, then is it le- better to let the, you know, politics duke it out? So let Trump be on the ballot. I mean, this is kind of Damon Linker's argument, by the way, right? Like, you know, half the country is going to consider uh, the Supreme Court's decision illegitimate one way or the other. And so if there is no neutral institution left, let the people decide. That's a, a reasonable argument, and you've seen it in some uh, Ross Dudout uh, piece hit this and others that have kind of framed this as this is a this is a mistake dumb thing for Biden and the Democrats to do. Uh, but the reality is Biden and the Democrats and, and the DNC, et cetera, are not the ones doing this. And nobody could have stopped somebody from going out there and trying it. I mean, people were talking about it on January 6th. The idea was so was obvious. And, you know, there's been a lot of fleshing it out since then and people coming to their positions and the rest of it. Uh, but it only takes one person to file a lawsuit um, like this question. There was never a way to keep this question from coming before the courts. It's one thing to say it would be better uh, if this had never come before the courts and if this just wasn't happening at all. But it's another thing to say, well, conceding that it has, both decisions will have the same bad outcome. Well, then that's a wash. I do think people misunderstand, and this gets conveyed in the coverage, that, oh, this is, I mean, Biden has not said word one in favor of it. The Solicitor General has stayed out of the case. They usually weigh in on the important things before the Supreme Court uh, for the administration's position. They've stayed out of it. The DNC has not filed any briefs in support of of this whole effort. It's largely being done. I mean, the plaintiffs themselves are Republicans and in some states, independents, people who can vote in the Republican primaries. Um, the main advocacy group that's leading the lawsuits themselves is Crew, which is uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They're a liberal um, advocacy group. It would be fair to call them Democrats. I'm sure they're not officially, but, you know, effectively. Um, but like they don't they don't take orders from anybody. There's nobody who could have sent out the memo. Don't try this. So one question we might ask when we were talking about uh, majoritarianism, what's at stake? If we were to go completely majoritarian, would it be too dramatic to say potentially everything? Just sort of breaking it down for for listeners, what what would be at stake there? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, what would it like? Let's if you were to try and think this through, right? Like, what would it mean? It would mean that at every election, you would have no standing rules of the game. You know, the rules for every election would first have to be put to a vote for the majority to decide what those rules are going to be. And those two would be decided by a pure majority, which means that the pure majority would always write the rules to keep itself in power, right? And then you would have elections based on rules that the majority has written to privilege itself, right? I mean, how would it work? It couldn't, you know, sort of this pure majoritarianism, uh, you know, maybe it would work in a small city state like 
uh, Athens where people, everybody was engaged, you know, in a deliberative process and they could talk to each other and come to some kind of a consensus that everybody could live with. But in a large republic like ours, are we going to put the rules of, so, you know, so you don't have an electoral college. This election, we don't have an electoral college because it won't help the majority. But in the next election, maybe we will have an electoral college because it'll help the majority, right? Like, how would that even work to have pure majoritarianism? And that that kind of gets at what your John Adams quote was saying about, um, you know, pure majoritarianism is kind of it's a thing that can't even exist. Um, It's not it's not it's too unsustainable. It commits suicide. Right. Right. Um, Because you will inevitably have, you know, whoever whoever manages to, uh, you know, kind of be in power when the music stops uh, can keep themselves forever. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, you know, goes to in, you know, in uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, that was always the slam against them, right? Uh, One man, one vote, one time. And, and, you know, and then that's it. And then you get into power and you just write the rules as the majority that has elected you to write them as said. And it said that we are not going to have elections ever again. Boom. Done. And it, I mean, it's not a hypothetical concern no. when we're talking about Mr. I'm going to be a dictator on day one <laughs> right. and terminate the Constitution and, uh, you know, all the rest of it. You know, his his attempt to overthrow the election is a, of a piece with his, you know, broader anti-constitutionalism of wanting to be a dictator. Exactly. And not just go after the other party and its enemies. Now he's turning his ire against Nikki Haley. He's promising to go after her and anybody who donates, uh, yeah, uh, funds her, donates to her. Yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, right. And that goes to how that's a fundamentally unfair election. If if one that's side right. loses, then they all go to jail. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which means that we are literally then talking about you know mob warfare. So whoever. So we are not even talking about winning on the ballot box anymore, right? It is whoever can defeat the other side uh, through blood on the streets gets to rule. That's what we have elections to try to not do. You know, as fr- as frustrating and at times stupid and even corrupt and venal and all the rest of it as democratic politics can be, it's always worth keeping in mind. It's what we do instead of beating each other's brains out all the time. That's right. And on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Zooming In, a project of The Unpopulist. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast at The Unpopulist, where host Aaron Ross Powell explores the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. For more like this, make sure to subscribe for free at theunpopulist.net. Until next time.